0: Welcome to the A Day at DPL podcast. In this episode, Christine Benz from Morningstar and DPL's David Lau discuss top findings from her most recent white paper on equity market risk. They also talk about benefits of using annuities for guaranteed income and how advisors can use certain strategies to help clients mentally prepare for retirement.
1: Welcome, Christine Benz. Thanks for being here for a day at DPL. Most people know who you are. You've got quite a long resume and well-accomplished. You know, Christine is Director of Personal Finance at Morningstar and a Senior Columnist for Morningstar.com. In addition, one of the things that I think is terrific is the inaugural list of Barron's 100 Most Influential Women in Finance. Congratulations to being named to that.
0: Thank you so much. It was a real thrill.
1: We live in a super dynamic time in what we do. I've worked in financial services and you know, mostly focused on you know, retirement, retirement products You know, for the last 17 years of my career. And, and you focus on personal finance and, and retirement. And boy, the world is, just seems so dynamic today with so much changing in regard to all of it, both in the markets and with people's longevity and new products coming to market, liquid alts and in what we do, annuities, so much going on, and and so much complexity to all of it. What's on your mind these days? Where are you focused? A
0: few different things, and one of the reasons why, when I I had initially been part of our mutual fund research team, and then eventually headed up our U.S. team before deciding to get more focused on financial planning and retirement planning matters. Um, and I think we all just have to remind ourselves how much the environment has changed for today's retirees over the past couple of decades. So you've had this steady drip drop downward in interest rates. So the raw materials for retirement income are not there. I mean, I think about my late father-in-law, for example, he was one of these very income-centric investors with respect to his portfolio. And I remember he came to me one day and said, oh, Christine, I'm thinking about buying this Ford bond that has the yield that I'm looking for. And he was gonna put a lot of his portfolio into this single bond because he was so focused on getting that income from his portfolio. So there's that issue that you've got today's retirees trying to generate income from their portfolios. And then you have more of us, I would count myself in this group as well, who will be going into retirement without the benefit of a pension. And so Social Security will be my sole source of lifetime income in retirement. So those two factors, I think, have been so huge. And influential in terms of necessitating a different mindset about how we approach retirement planning. And some retirees have, I think, warmed up to the environment and have have gotten real about what we're living through and others are still playing catch up. So those have been a couple of things that I've been toiling on trying to create bucket portfolios, for example, that help address this issue of, well, okay, yields are really low. How do you Create a sane portfolio in an environment where organically generated yields just aren't really there.
1: Right, and on top of it, the extending life expectancy—you know—that that keeps going on. And not so long ago, when you retired, you're thinking of a 10 to 15-year period of time that you were that you were going to fund, often with the help of a pension and social security. But now you're talking about 25, 30 years, possibly, where you're completely self-funding beyond you know. Maybe maybe whatever might be there from Social Security.
0: Right. And the one thing I often think about, I speak to these groups of investors who, by definition, are a wealthier segment of our population. And you know the data correlating very neatly in the U.S. between income and level of wealth, and longevity. Um, you know, you often hear this statistic. I think that if you are part of a married couple, there's a one in three chance that one of you will make it to age 95. I believe, Well, that number goes even higher when you're looking at higher levels of wealth. That's just the average for our population. So um, we had a conversation with Laura Karstensen, who's a longevity researcher at Stanford. And I asked her, well, can you explain the connection between longevity and income? And her comment was, it's everything. And that's something I think about as well with more affluent people were talking about much longer time horizons on average.
1: Yeah, exactly. Many of the advisors we work with, I mean, we're, you know, a number of years, I mean, not so long ago, even when they're creating financial plans using age 90, you know, for, a, you know, a planning horizon was fairly common. Today, it's, it's more like 100 because you have to be a little bit on the conservative side. And like you're saying, the data for wealthier clients, there's about a 20% probability that 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 one of them in a wealthier set might be alive at age 100. You're getting longer and longer life expectancies. And in this particular interest rate environment, it makes it really challenging. So I'd be curious as to what you've been seeing relative to portfolios, as basically we've seen this world where we've had a Kind of prolonged bull market, so clients and advisors both kind of reluctant to get out of equities you know, because sure. you, you've got great great performance and everybody you know looks smart when the market continues to go up. In many ways, it reminds me of like 1999, 2000, when we had the boom of you know the E Trades and Schwabs of the world, where people were investing their own money. Everybody thought they were so smart because everything was going to the roof. But then here now today, we've also got the counterbalance, which doesn't look as attractive, right? So you've got on one hand equities, which are really performing well, and then you've got fixed income bonds, which are you know, near all time lows. So the alternatives don't look that great, which wind up giving you even more incentive you know, to stay in the market. What, what do you see you know, today as you look at portfolios and talk to consumers?
0: Yeah, I do think that there's a fair amount of complacency about equity risk currently, um, in part because the alternative fixed income assets are so underwhelming, Where especially right. where you have concerns about inflation. Do you really want to have something that where you're lucky to have a 2% income stream and have every bit of that gobbled up by inflation? So I think that that is keeping investors in equities, although annually I do think This compendium of market forecasts from various firms, not short term, longer term market forecasts, like for the next decade or so. And generally speaking, these firms, whether BlackRock or Vanguard or JP Morgan or our team at Morningstar Investment Management, have pretty muted return expectations for U.S. equities over the next decade. Better for non-U.S. than Mm -hmm. U.S. But I, I do think that the raw materials for great returns from sort of standard portfolios over the next decade are pretty constrained. And fixed income, certainly the relationship is even more direct where your starting yield is quite predictive of what you're apt to earn from fixed income assets. So my wish is that investors were being more realistic about what the next decade holds for sort of a standard 60-40 portfolio, my sense is that some are not being at
1: all realistic. We see that, you know, even with advisors, as we work with you know, over a thousand advisory firms and we survey them you know, about what kind of market assumptions are you putting into your financial plans and you know what kind of longevity assumptions and just to see where the market is. And they're not, I would say, terrible <laughs> is is a way to think about it they're you know a little bit optimistic maybe generally it's always interesting that nobody ever predicts next year is going to be a negative year in the market right um, but <laughs> everybody's assuming if you ask them what their market assumptions are for next year it's always it's going to be positive it's just a matter of how positive right um, but we see some you know reasonable market assumptions you know on the equity side uh, you know again you know similar on international you know people are expecting a little better you know performance on international than than us on the fixed income side pretty pessimistic maybe realistic but pessimistic you know where they're expecting you know below 2% i think 80% of our respondents were you know in like the one to 1.5% range and and that's a real problem as we talk to advisory firms they often tell us now, they don't even think about bonds as generating yield. That's not the way they position them to their clients. It's simply ballast to the portfolio, return of your investment, which is really different than the way historically bonds have been viewed.
0: So true. But that is, I think, the same way to think about bonds in a portfolio. That if in a worst case scenario where stocks go down and stay down for a good long while, like if we have another lost decade inequities like we had from 2000 through 2010 the idea is that you could sort of plow through those safer assets for spending money and you know not have to touch your equity assets when they're in a trough so I think that that's kind of a sensible way to, to set it up and I've been thinking more about kind of that reverse glide path idea that Wade Fow and Michael kitsis talked about the idea was that you come into retirement with the most conservative portfolio that you'll have mm-hmm. throughout retirement, it's feeling to me like that's probably a reasonable way to, to be thinking about approaching retirement if, if you're just coming into retirement.
1: Yeah. But then you wind up with the challenge of presenting it to your clients. If you're an advisor, let's get out of this bull market and into and into a conservative portfolio where you're getting very little yield. We think we can help provide another tool for most advisors and bring low-cost annuities into the mix. Because one of the things that concerns me relative to this retirement planning and the environment that we're in is that Clients or individual investors are more heavily invested in equities heading into retirement than they've ever been before you know, because of these dynamics. And that brings in sequence risk. You can do everything right for your whole life. You, you retire into a, into a bear market. And if you're dependent on those equities for funding income, that can really have a tremendously uh, bad impact on your prospect for retirement. And, that, and that's, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but that's something that given all I hear from advisors, you know, really concerns me.
0: Me too. It's the elephant in the room right now, really, that, that, um... Um, You know, what more do we need to see in terms of yields being what they are today and equity valuations being what they are to see this as really a key risk that anyone coming into retirement needs to be thinking about, though I often speak to groups of older retirees where basically my point is. You've made it, probably. If you're right. if you're here and you are 82, right. you're probably going to be okay because you've made it through the danger zone. It's the people who are just getting close to retirement who really need to be careful. And sort of another factor in the mix is some of the work that my colleague David Blanchett has done on what he calls retirement date risk, which is basically we're not as in control of our retirement dates yes. as you might like to think. There are a lot of things that can force people into retirement prematurely, whether health, COVID, spouses' health, parental care needs, whatever it might be. There are a lot of things. We know that age discrimination is an issue in the workplace. So a lot of things can conspire against people retiring on exactly that that date that they expected to.
1: Oh yeah, and there there's definitely data that shows that as well. Where the typical retiree or investor planning on retirement will, on average, say they're going to retire around age sixty-six, but in reality, it's closer to sixty-two. Is the actual retirement date again beyond their control, which is something we talk to advisors about a lot. You know, when you're creating a financial plan, there's so much uncertainty. Then you've got market returns and longevity questions, and so bringing some level of certainty into a plan we think is really important. And with other things like pensions by and large going away, social security being unpredictable as to what it might look like, we think bringing some certainty with an annuity, a low-cost commission-free annuity, I'll clarify, into a plan can make a lot of sense, both from a financial as well as a psychological point of view for retirees.
0: Yeah, no, I would agree. We on our podcast interviewed Jeffrey Brown, who is the dean of the business school at University of Illinois and has done a lot of research on annuities. And my colleague, Jeff, and I do this podcast together Jeff's younger than me. And we we talked to Jeff Brown for an hour. We took off our headphones. I looked at Jeff. I was like, are you ready to buy an annuity? He was like, yeah, pretty much because we were both... Kind of compelled uh, about the virtue of having that stable source of income for our own retirements, thinking about being people without pensions, how attractive that idea is.
1: Yeah. And I mean, for us, you know, we'll often, not to turn this into a complete annuity discussion, but we look at the fact that really, you know, a lot of the problems with the products stem from commissions, right? It drives high prices, it drives bad sales practices. And if you ask me, it drives complexity within products because providers are trying to differentiate their product in some fashion with some fancy bell or whistle. But the core of the product is a really good structure, tax deferred accumulation, which can be turned into lifetime income. And that's a fantastic structure. And if you eliminate cost by taking out distribution costs in the forms of commission and wholesaling and all the you know other things that drive up costs, they're really compelling products. I mean, just like you added 100 basis points of, of load onto a Vanguard ETF, it would it wouldn't be that great of a product. Right. It's the, it's the same thing with an annuity. So you know when people look at the products, eyes are usually open because they don't realize what a big impact taking out the Commission can have on the products.
0: And I have a related question for you on this front, David. We have been thinking a lot about sort of advisor business models and the right you know, way for advisors to charge for their services. And I have come around to the idea that the, probably there's no single one right way. <laughs> but one issue that has come up in the context of annuities is just for the AUM-based advisor who is charging a percentage of clients' assets under management on an ongoing basis. Do you think that there's a disincentive? I mean, there would be an economic disincentive incentive to recommend some sort of an annuity purchase. Um, how big a deal do you think that is? Or do you find that some of the AUM-based advisors are coming around to the virtue of having more guaranteed uh, income?
1: Well, I mean, that's part of the change we bring to the market. So now an annuity, which you've historically not been able to bill on because it's commission driven, right? Right, you can now. So now an annuity is just like the rest of your portfolio. So it's just another asset under management for that AUM advisor. And as a matter of fact, part of the work we do on behalf of the RIA industry is working with carriers to make sure they support that. So all the products that we bring to market, advisor has the ability to bill on. And most of the products you can bill directly out of the product. We think there's been a lot of advancement in that because it's, it's always been a conflict of interest you know, for the advisor. And I think a lot of the negative perceptions or you know, the negative attitudes towards annuities come from that. It's all driven by the commission. The commission makes it unbillable for the RIA, drives up the price, complexity, all of those things. And when you remove it now it can be a billable asset. And you take away that conflict for the AUM fee-only advisor. We think that's a terrific evolution for the industry in general because it it just removes conflict. The commission's a conflict for the commission salesperson. Of course, they want you to buy the annuity and they want you to put as much money into it as you possibly can. Right. When you're dealing with a fee-only advisor, if on the other hand, they can't get paid on the annuity that's a that's a huge disincentive for using them and we find in the number of years i've been doing this 17 years now working with advisors and annuities fee only advisors and annuities the number one question 95% of the time is can i get paid on these yes you can Good
0: to know. So do you think it's getting better? And won't keep interviewing you, but I have another question. We, you know, historically there's been this rift where either the advisor is someone who deals in insurance products and is knowledgeable about them or the investment advisors who sort of have annuities marked with a skull and crossbones and, and throw them overboard at the earliest possible instance. So do you feel like that's getting better where those two things are coming together a little bit more?
1: I do. We've built a business upon the the notion that that's going to happen, right? So, and, and I do think that that's happening because fiduciary advisors we deal with, they traditionally have that skull and crossbones next to annuities for the commission products that they're used to. When you talk to them about low-cost, commission-free products where you're dropping the price of an annuity by like 80%, it's a whole different conversation. So once you can get somebody over that hurdle that, look, this isn't the annuity you're used to thinking about. Take a look at the product. We ran an ad campaign that was about a quote we got from an advisor that said, I can't unsee this. What the annuity can deliver is pretty powerful. And so we find if we can just get an advisor to look at an actual product rather than objecting to the category or the notion. If you can look at the products and and see what the products can do and how they're priced and the benefits they can bring, that makes all the difference in the world. And then for them, the great proof is putting them into a financial planning software to show your client the impact it can have on a financial plan, which is generally raising the Monte Carlo score. That's the great proof the advisor needs in showing the client.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I work a lot on the whole bucket strategy. And um, I often say that sort of some front end work needs to go on before you get into structuring your buckets. And one of the first things after you've figured out how much you'll be spending in retirement is to make sure that you're making smart choices about maximizing lifetime income sources. Yep. So, you know social security certainly but also is some sort of additional source of guaranteed income a- an option for you and it seems that as more people are retiring without pensions that will make more and more sense
1: yeah and particularly in this low interest rate environment where actually annuities bring more benefit you know than in higher interest rate environments but you find that funding like the way we go about it we try to tell your friend David Blanchett who's our our friend as well, and Wade and Wade Fowle and and the others, you know, retirement researchers, you know, we try to operationalize their research. That's what we're trying to do as a firm. So let's solve for essential income needs for clients. Let's not go the commissioned way and say, how much can you afford to put into this yeah. annuity, <laughs> right? It's, it's how much do you need, right? So let's define your essential income needs. Let's meet that through guaranteed income, you know, combining your social security, whatever other sources you might have with the income from the annuity, and let's let the portfolio do the work it was designed to do. And that's grow and provide legacy and discretionary spending and, and things like that.
0: Right, right. I love that idea of the more guaranteed income you have, the growthier your, your portfolio can be, in line, at least in line with your risk yes, tolerance. Um, exactly. If you're able to reduce the drag of cash and bond holdings in the portfolio, it seems to me that you're, you can embellish the portfolio's long-term growth
1: potential. I know you talk about bucket strategies a lot, which make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. One, clients like them. It helps them think about their assets in a a way that they can easily comprehend. One of the things that we talk to advisors about, too, is thinking about how you construct those buckets in today's market. And you were touching on this just a little bit ago. It's a little bit different because the traditional assets don't do what they necessarily do. So how do you think about the tools you use in constructing those buckets, you know, any differently. And we think we can play a role in in that kind of thing as well. What do you see in terms of like updating, thinking around bucketing strategies today?
0: Yeah, I had a conversation with Wade Fow about the bucket approach and His view is that, you know, potentially you could be a little bit more sophisticated than simply holding cash in bucket one. And maybe I should back up and talk about when I talk about kind of a baseline bucket strategy, I was very much influenced by talking to Harold Ovensky, the financial Mm -hmm. planner in Coral Gables. More than a decade ago, I was talking to Harold about how he does retirement planning for his clients. And he said, well, I just use a simple bucket strategy where I set aside a cash bucket for a couple of years worth of portfolio with. And then I run a total return, you know, balanced portfolio in line with whatever their target allocations are. And he said something which really made a light bulb go off with me, which is he said it works behaviorally. He said he would call his clients sometimes when the market would be undergoing some volatility and say, how are you feeling? Are you okay with what's going on in your portfolio? And his clients would basically just repeat it back to him. Like we know we have our near term (laughs) cash. <laughs> Cash flow needs set aside so That's we right can still take that cruise we had planned to take next year. Or we were we're going to help with our granddaughter's wedding and that money is set aside and safe. And so he found that it bought his clients a lot of peace of mind, just knowing that their near-term cash flow needs were locked down. So I took Harold's approach and tweaked it a little bit. So I have a three bucket system that I think about and talk about. And again, David, I think it's main use for advisors as an illustration tool for thinking about explaining asset allocation to clients. So in my bucket system, I've got like two years worth of portfolio withdrawals in cash investments, where you just want to lock that money down, you can spend it as you need it. And then another, say, eight or so years in high quality fixed income investments, eight years worth of portfolio withdrawals, not eight years of all in living expenses, because some of that stuff will be coming from Social Security or an annuity Mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. So, another eight years worth of portfolio withdrawals. And I've structured that bucket to kind of stair-stepped by risk level. So starting with maybe next line reserves, if cash were depleted, but the retiree still needed additional expenditures. So I'd start with like a short-term, very high-quality bond fund. I would include an intermediate-term high-quality bond fund to pick up a little bit more yield, not not much, but a little bit more. I'd include a little bit of treasury inflation-protected securities in that portion of the portfolio. And because we're talking about an eight-year horizon, I might include a little bit of high quality dividend paying equity exposure as well. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that with that 10 year framework, you've got your two years worth of cash, another eight years worth of generally high quality fixed income assets, a little bit of equities. If the equity market goes down and stays down for a long period of time, the retiree could kind of spend through that setup. So that's kind of the baseline system. But I do think that there are some adjustments back to your question that that you could make in light of the fact that yields are so low. So Wade Fowle would would evangelize for using something other than cash just to reduce the opportunity cost associated with that bucket one. So he calls buffer assets, which might be an annuity. It might be life insurance cash value. It might be reverse mortgage. Mm -hmm. Might make sense in that context. And then I think arguably you could shrink bucket two a little bit so it's not eight years worth of portfolio withdrawals but it's more like five years worth of portfolio withdrawals in in bonds so those are some adjustments that I think you could make around the
1: margins that's great it's it's so interesting to think about the behavioral side of all this because you know, so many advisors you come up as asset managers you know think about managing the portfolio and the you know the investment opportunities and the investment risks and all that forget a little bit about the client. <laughs> right? And, right and and their attitudes and their behaviors relative to all of it. You mentioned Harold uh, Avensky and that bucket approach, and it's great to hear back from your clients, them repeating your advice from Harold. We heard some of the same things, you know, early in COVID, where you know annuities can play the same role, and behaviorally, you're just looking at the same thing, right? Where I feel secure, you know. Mm-hmm. So while the market is collapsing <laughs> very quickly with COVID, everybody's panicked, and for the advisor, good advice they're giving everyone at that time is stay the course. Don't panic. So many people move to cash. You know, we've seen the data on that. Our advisors would tell us back the ones that we had provided annuities for because they knew their income was secured. They could hear that message a lot easier. Investors have anxieties um, right. and, and the same strategies and same approaches don't necessarily work for everyone, you know, based on their psychology.
0: That's right. I love talking to Michael Finca about these issues. Yes, and he cited some statistic. You might know it, David, but it was it, it was something about having X number of dollars in an annuity in terms of peace of mind, in terms of like what that signaled for the client or felt like to them was much higher than the actual outlay of dollars that they had put into the annuity, that because it sort of added security to the plan, just off the top of my head, it was something like $200,000 outlay in an annuity was equivalent to like $500,000 actually having that money in the bank because of the extra security that it imparted.
1: Right. And it all depends, you know, on the psychology of the client. You might have clients who are completely unconcerned. You know, they believe in in probabilities and they're willing to take risks and they're happy to be in the market. But then you have others, you know, who really value, as you're talking about with Michael's data, really value the security. And knowing that they have secure income really lets them enjoy their retirement more because it's mentally important to them to get through their day, to be able to even spend. Wade Fowl also has data on increasing people's ability to spend. Because some clients, they don't want to spend the money because they're worried about running out of money and having a predictable stream, you know, can also help those kind of people.
0: I think that's an under discussed issue, frankly, the underspending. I encounter that a lot where I'll speak to older retirees and I'll have an older adult come up to me and tell me that they're spending like 2% of their portfolio. I do think that that mm-hmm. is an issue. It may be partially generational that you yep. have some of these folks who came of age in in an environment where thrift was really important and where they had gotten where they are today based on thrift mm-hmm. and their right incredibly reticent to spend what they what they'd managed to save
1: because if you think about just the the general change of your overall behavior when you get to be retired you're going to work one day and the next day you're not and you're you're saving one day and the next day you're spending down your portfolio I and mean, these are big behavioral changes and you know you have those people who've been savers their whole life and now they need to start decumulating and you probably spent 40 50 years of your life, understanding that you shouldn't touch your nest egg, and now all of a sudden you're saying, "Okay, I've got to start funding my income from it." That's a big behavioral change, and I think there, there's not as much as you know. I'd love to see on you know people addressing it. It's become certainly a hotter topic over the last you know I don't know five ten years. It's it's so interesting to me because you know, everybody is different.
0: It's borderline traumatic, I think, for some people to make yes. that transition. In fact, I honestly think that's why some people keep working because they are just nervous about ever switching into that mode. And another related thing I've been thinking about is whether volatility of our earnings in our lifetime somehow influences our approach to retirement decumulation. And I'll just mm-hmm. say I've been thinking about this with respect to my husband's and my own plan, and that we. We have both been working since we were in our 20s. And we have had a very stable source of cash flow through our earnings. No disruption, literally, thankfully. Yep. And we're very grateful for that. But thinking about our in retirement plan, I'm of the mindset that I really want something similar to that in mm-hmm. retirement. I always hear that people say, well, you should be comfortable with volatility in your portfolio withdrawals. I don't know. You know, I come from a Mindset where that has not been my life, where I've had big adjustments or deal with them mentally at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and I think that notion is more prevalent now than I than I've ever heard throughout my career. And I think that's a little, you know, from advisors we talk to, they almost all tell you. Monte Carlo scores. It's not a failure. It's not 80 percent success, 20 percent failure. It's it's 20 percent adjustment. 20 percent of the cases are going to need adjustment. Not everybody wants to be adjusted, right. right? Nor, not only do they not want to, they may not be able to be. I mean, it's not always completely in control. How much gets spent? There are life events. I mean, we were talking a bit, of, you know, earlier about long-term care and the devastating effect that can have and such a concern. But I mean, it's not always, you know, controllable. You know, the the no that you I can just dial spending up and down and everything is going to be fine I think is fiction it might work for Many cases, but you know, I think that's overall a pretty loose way of handling something so serious because retirement is so important to so many people, and they don't have remedies anymore, right? During their working years, they can try to work longer, or save more, or do all these things. When you get to be 75, 80 years old, I mean, you don't necessarily have those kind of you know remedies if your plan is not going well, and just to think I can dial up spending up and down a little bit that doesn't give me a lot of comfort.
0: Yeah, I hear that a lot too. And it does. I mean, certainly when you look at the data and the, the best withdrawal strategies are, are flexible. Yep. I think level of wealth is in the mix as well, that there's a big difference between telling the person who's spending $200,000 a year that they need to take it down to 160 right. versus telling the person who's spending 50 that they need to take it down to 40. So level of wealth fits in as well, that the more affluent you are, should at least in theory be a little bit more equipped to make those adjustments.
1: I do want to talk about long-term care because you were saying earlier how when you speak nothing can get audience kind of engaged as much as talking about long-term care. And you know, since we're in the insurance business and are always trying to find better ways of delivering these kind of products for consumers, what are the kind of things that you hear about, what are the concerns clients have around long-term care? Generally, what gets everybody so worked up?
0: It's the major source of angst for retirees, in my experience, because you've had people who thought they were doing all the right things by purchasing a long-term care policy, and many of them have gotten sucked with premium increases. Or I often hear from older adults who have helped parents navigate long-term yes. care policies and extracting benefits when they needed them. I've certainly heard stories where this went off without a hitch The insurance company was great. We were able to get everything we needed out of the policy. I've also heard the opposite case where this was just another source of angst in our household when our family was already confronting with an ill parent and we were also spending as much time arguing with the insurance company. So you've got that camp, people who went out and purchased a policy and, and have had either premium increases or maybe a poor experience. And then a bigger cohort that I encounter these days would be the people who have assets, who have been counseled to self-fund long-term care expenses, should they incur them, but have a lot of angst about what that will mean for their portfolio spending. Like, does that mean that I need to segregate those assets from my spendable assets? I would say, yes, probably, if that's your plan. How do I right-size that long-term care fund? And there, I would say probably look at the data of long-term care costs in your geography. And they vary hugely Mm -hmm. by geography, but look at uh, costs, look at also just sort of the data we have on length of stay, which seems to be in the realm of like 18 months to two years for a long-term care need. So I would say that those are some of the big issues percolating. And then, you know, you come back to the fact that it seems to be kind of a coin toss about whether or not will need long-term care in our lifetimes when you look at the data that Mm -hmm. um, about half of us will have a need, another half of us won't have a need. So what do you do with that? Um, So just a lot of concern there.
1: Yeah, it's been a challenge as we look to, you know, try to bring product to market. One of the ones as as like you were mentioning is always a non starter for me is the reimbursable policies where you're filing claims and you know you're typically in your eighties if you're in a long term care facility. The filing of those claims is almost always gonna fall to the family. That makes it a really difficult, you know, proposition. So we we take those off off the table. Then you have the question of you might not need it. Uh, so is it something, you know, you want to pay for if you may get no benefit from? And so we brought a policy to, to market. We designed, nothing's a silver bullet, but we think it's helpful. We've, we think the problem is basically from the way we can solve it, your expenses went up. So let us give you a product that's going to be a really good income generating annuity. And if you need long-term care, we'll double it. So it's a you know fairly simple straightforward product with a kind of a a pretty simple approach to helping.
0: Yeah, certainly that optionality, I think, is really attractive. It's an attractive component of any of the hybrid products, in my view, that the care rider is there to cover you in case you have those expenses. But if not, it doesn't create a a major disruption for the rest of your plan. And one thing I like to mention in this context is a lot of older adults have life insurance policies that they're not necessarily necessarily using Mm
1: -hmm. anymore
0: so there's an opportunity to do an exchange into some sort of a policy that so you know caring for your dependents was your big risk when you were younger now you've got this other risk that is keeping you up at night so i think it rather elegantly lets an older adult trade one risk for the risk that's front and center for them now
1: Yes, no, that's a great that's a great idea. One of the things I know we wanted to talk about and you know we talked about a little bit earlier was you know your current research and the white paper you're creating on basically correlation of asset classes and maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what you're seeing and you know what what are kind of the some of the headlines and surprises and overall things you've seen in that research.
0: Yeah, thanks, David. I'm part of a small research team and we're working on a piece mining our data at Morningstar. We have a lot of great Index data going way back in time, thanks to our acquisition of Ibbotson Associates several years ago. So, we are looking at what would have been the best diversifier for equity risk over the past couple of decades. And I would say the headline there is that the simplest diversifiers have generally been the most effective. So, treasury bonds have been. Quite effective over the past couple of decades in terms of sort of uh, gaining ground, serving as a buffer when equities have uh, experienced challenging periods. So uh, treasuries look good from this standpoint. Cash, probably not surprisingly, also looks good as an mm-hmm. equity diversifier. Um, you know, won't gain in value in periods of equity market stress, but will definitely hold steady. So those would be the two main categories that have helped to serve to diversify equity risk. Gold has to some extent as well over this time period that we've examined. One thing that we've been thinking about is whether, and indeed it does, the past 20 years captures a very specific period in time that may not be recaptured in the future. So we've had this period of declining yields. We've had a fairly benign inflation environment. All of that has been quite good in terms of high quality fixed income investments will it be so going forward I think that's the big open question and you don't have to go that far back in time to see periods when interest rates were higher inflation was higher and equities were bumpy and treasury bonds didn't necessarily deliver during those periods so it's you know correlations are like any other past return data point they are not predictive, but I think still
1: useful. Yeah. So one of the Big asset classes that took a rise after 2008 was, you know, liquid alts. It was always kind of considered bonds, equities, not correlated. There was a big correlation at that time. You know, liquid alts were, you know, really becoming popular because, in large part, the you know non-correlation or the you know the billing of them being non-correlated. Now you're looking at even a smaller data set. What did the research show you relative to liquid alts?
0: It's not impressive from the standpoint of diversifying equity risk. The liquid alts managers would say, well, we really haven't had an environment, an extended environment in which we could shine, which is a 100% true that many of Mm -hmm. these products came out in the wake of the financial crisis. They came out in early 2009, 2010, and we just have not had that many periods where we could examine how well they were able to do, but we haven't seen a great picture from them in terms of being diversifying assets. Whether that will hold true going forward is an open question. We have seen some of these products getting merged away, getting liquidated altogether, which we often see You know, after these bursts of enthusiasm around an asset class, we'll see them sort of begin to die out. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that. My yeah. view is the value proposition on many of these products are there can be not a high returning asset class but something that could help buffer your equity assets. My view is that some of these products were just priced too high coming mm-hmm. out of the gate. So if you're looking at an asset class where you're lucky to earn a 4 or 5% return, you certainly don't want to be giving up a percentage <laughs> of that in terms of your fees. But that's how many of these these funds were mm-hmm. set up.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of them, you know, built out of traditional hedge fund strategies where there's usually some pretty hefty fees on, on the hedge like, funds and some old hedge fund managers launching strategies in, in the liquid format. And I think probably a little high priced. And one thing we, we all know is that if anything is going to impact performance, certainly price is going to be something that's going to impact performance. For sure. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us at a day at DPL today. It was a terrific conversation. And hopefully someday soon we'll see each other live and in person and uh, be able to say hello.
0: Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on, David.
1: Thanks, Christine.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, go to DPLFP.com and subscribe on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify.